Thanks. <laughs> Got to breathe now. <sighs> okay. Some weeks are hard. Some weeks are easy, and you look in the coming week, and you know it's hard. It's good to see God's faithfulness through it all. So, we're in a busy season of life right now, Maggie and I. Well, this past month has been crazy, and we look at our calendars coming up, and it's going to be crazy. We're in what's called birthday season, which is a lot of fun, a lot of presents, a lot of cake, a lot of ice cream, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of cranky kids. It's just what's happened. It's happens. It happens. We started with my mother-in-law's birthday at the end of January, and then a week later, we slid into my daughter's birthday, and then a week later, we slid into my son's birthday. Uh, that was this past week, and then, of course, this week is Valentine's Day, and the week after that is my birthday, and it's just this crazy time, crazy time. It's a time of celebrating God's amazing mercies in people's lives as we reflect back on the years that he has brought us through. That's what birthdays are for. Uh, We have a lot of fun, we celebrate, we give presents, but they are landmarks, points in the calendar where we stop and we reflect on all that God has done in the life of this person. Some people, it takes a longer time, like me. Other people, it takes a shorter time, like my kids, who are all under, well, I can't say they're under seven anymore, because Grace is now seven, I gotta change what I say. It's a lot of fun. It is fun. It's fun. There's a lot of laughter when you think about all the memories. Sometimes there's tears. Sometimes there's frustration because life has pain and life doesn't go the way you want it sometimes. And sometimes life goes the way the kid wants it, not the parent. And sometimes life goes the way the parent wants it, not the kid. As I think about my kids growing up, I, I, I try to remember the good times, but I'm only human, and sometimes I remember the hard times. I remember the times that my kids, of course I was there too, but my kids wanted to really touch something or play with something that they shouldn't be able to. They shouldn't, and I told them, don't do it, and they got that look in their eye, and they reached out to do it. And of course, this kid's only like three months old. And then they're four, and then they're five, and then they're six months old, and then a year, and two, and three. And what do you do? And I remember the first time, I've dealt with kids before. I know what you're supposed to do when they're, when, they were, when they're in that mindset of, you know, they're really young, you can't really discipline them well yet, and they're doing something you're not, they're not supposed to do, and they're just obsessed with that thing. And you pick them up, and you put them over there, and they just go right back over there. And you pick them up, and you put them over there, and they just go right back over there. It's like, what do you do? And I say, I know, you distract them. You distract them. But you don't know how to distract them. You don't know what to distract them with. When you do, you know, they, want, they have something and they, and they, there we go, there we go, there you go. They got something and you distract them to get the look, ooh, I want that. But the key is to find what that thing that makes them go, ooh, I want that. You find that thing. But unfortunately, that thing changes. And what worked one day doesn't work. And you just bang your head against the wall. I have a point to this. This is not a counseling session for me. 
Yes, to distract toddlers from grabbing what they're not supposed to grab or playing with what they're, you find something that will bring their obsession from that thing to become an obsession to this good thing. That's what we're supposed to do. Adults, we have a fancy word for that. Anyone want to guess what that fancy word is? Bribery. Bribery, thank you. I like that. That's good. I should write that down. None of you are going to guess. Probably not. The fancy word is repentance. Did anyone think of that? No. No one did. Because that's not what we think about. The fancy word is repentance. Where you have something that you're not supposed to do. And you're obsessed with it. And then you stop. You turn. And you become obsessed with something that is good. Repentance. Repentance. A very important step in the sermon that we were doing about breaking free from the chains of addiction and sin. Over the past month, we have seen that we are powerless in our own strength, that all of us are sinners doomed to repeat our sin over and over and over again, that we are all addicted to something because we are turning away from God to this thing and saying, this thing will supply all my needs. It never does, but we think it does. And so we pursue it and we're powerless to change from that and turn back to God ourselves. We've discussed how we must believe that God is the one whose power can fully restore us because he alone can do that. By faith, we must trust God with our life and will through the grace offered for us in Jesus Christ. That all of us must come to a point where we draw a line in the sand and we say, yes, I realize I'm a sinner and I can do nothing to save myself from my sin. My good works won't do it. My church attendance won't do it. My con- Confession, my baptism, my, the fact that my family professes to be followers of Jesus Christ, nothing that will save me. I need Jesus and Jesus alone. We step across that line. We say, Jesus, I trust you. Please save me from my sin. When we do that, we make that decision from ourselves. Jesus saves us, and he gives us the Holy Spirit, put it in us to help us in this Christian life. Knowing who we are, knowing that we desperately need God and God is the one who is reaching out his hand to, say, to help us and to save us, we then look into a mirror and we make a fearless moral inventory of ourselves. We say, yes, this is who I am. This is the sin that I struggle with. This is why I struggle with that sin. And we look in that mirror even though it's, it's uncomfortable, it's painful, it's shocking because we don't truly want to see ourselves for the sinners that we are. But we look in that mirror and we say, yes, this is me. All these steps that I've talked about are steps of believing the truth. Truth is what sets us free from sin and addiction. We must know the truth, we must believe the truth, but that truth must be acted upon. It's not good to say, yes, I'm addicted to gossiping, and then do nothing about it. It doesn't doesn't help. We must believe the truth, we must know the truth, but then we must act on the truth. And one of the steps of acting on that truth was what we talked about last week, that we must be people who confess. Because of the truth, we must be people who confess. We have to make an honest admission to ourselves and to God and to trusted friends. This is the sin I struggle with. Can you help me? 
Today, that was last week, we must be people who confess. Today is we must be people who repent. We must be people who repent. We become entirely ready to turn away from our pattern of sin and turn to God. Repent. Paul writes in our text, 2 Timothy 2, 22, he says, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Today, as we study this verse, we're going to define repentance, we're going to look at the way of Christ, and we're going to present some practical considerations. But before we dive in, will you pray with me? Father, King of kings and Lord of lords, the great I am, the one who is perfect and holy, the one who doesn't need us, but chooses to have a relationship with us, is so good to come before you and declare you our God and King as our only hope, to say that we are hopeless without you, and to fall on our face grateful that you provide a way that we can climb out of our sin and addiction and turn to you, our Savior, and you walk with us through life. When we stumble and fall, you pick us up, you wash us off, and you keep us going. And one day you will call us to our glorious home in perfection. God, what a glorious day that will be when we gather on your throne and cry out, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until then, Father, I ask you, give us the strength today and tomorrow and the next day to live our lives reflecting your holiness live our lives in a way that shows people that you are our king and nothing else is. Teach us what that means, Father, and give us the guts to walk according to it. Today, as I am up here, Lord, I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Repentance. What is repentance? Theologically, we could pick up a Bible dictionary like the Lexham Bible Dictionary and we'd read this. That repentance is the act whereby one turns from his or her sin, idolatry, and creaturely rebellion and turns to God in faith. It's a nice definition. I agree with it. However, it's limited in scope. Because this definition is speaking, uh, focusing mostly on the act of repentance Repentance and salvation, where we say, I am a sinner and I need Jesus. We turn from our sinful ways and our thoughts, how we can save ourselves, and we turn to Jesus as our only hope. That is repentance. Turn from former life to new life in Christ. And it's a very important aspect of repentance, this repentance at salvation. But repentance does not stop with salvation. It starts with it. Everyone needs to come to that point where they draw the line of the sand, they cross, came a They cross it and make the decision to trust Jesus as their Savior. And if you've not made that decision, I I ask you today, make it. Because you have no hope to live apart from Christ. You need him. Make the decision today. But repentance doesn't stop at salvation. We as followers of Jesus Christ are called to be people of repentance. People who every day go through this process of repentance. A guy named Martin Luther lived a long time ago. 
and he wrote up what was called the 95 Theses. And he marched up to a church in Germany and pounded them into this door at that church in Wittenberg. And he says, one of those points of the 95 Theses, he says this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, he said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. We're not called to say, you know what? I believed in Jesus I'm good. I got fire insurance. I'm not going to hell anymore. I can live my life however I want to live it. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 6. Should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. And that is a very uh, quieted translation because he actually cusses in Greek right there. I probably shouldn't have told you that. But that's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 verses 12 to 13. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation but it is not to the flesh to live according to it, to our sinful nature. For if you live according to the flesh, the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, and you will live. We are called to look at ourselves in the mirror and see where we are living according to the flesh, according to our sinful nature. Because even after accepting Jesus Christ, we're going to still want to live according to our sinful nature. So we look in that mirror and see, this is who I am. This is my sin. We confess that sin to ourselves. We confess it to God. We confess it to a trusted friend. And then we make a decision at that moment to say, I am going to turn away from that sinful pattern, and I'm going to turn to God. And that's what Paul calls living by the Spirit, saying, I'm putting to death the deeds of the body, and I'm going to bring to life the deeds of the Spirit. There are three important elements to repentance. Three important elements to repentance. We see what we are doing as wrong, that is against God. We turn away from it, and we turn toward God. Very simple. Very simple. But all of them are very important. Because it's very easy to see what we're doing as wrong against God and not turn away from that sin and say, you know what? I still want to do it. Who cares about you, God? We wouldn't actually say that, but by our actions, we do. So it's important. See what we're doing is wrong, turn away from it, but then turn towards God. There are other times we say, you know what? That's wrong. I realize it's wrong. I'm going to turn away from it, and I'm going to go over here to something that's equally as wrong. Where God says no repentance is you see your sin is wrong, you turn away from it, and you turn towards God. Paul writes to Timothy about repentance in our passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. He says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Timothy, along with members of his congregation at Ephesus, were indulging in what Paul calls the evil desires of youth. When I was growing up, especially in my teenage years, I read that and thought, ha! Ah! It's lustfulness and sensuality, and that is what we're supposed to flee. But the desires did not have to do with lustfulness and sensuality in this passage. In fact, the evil desires of youth had to do with the words that we use and the things we talk about, is what Paul's writing here, because we go on in the following verses. He says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Now, when I was in Sunday school and everyone taught 1 Timothy 2.22 to me, I always thought, like I said, lustfulness and sensuality because they never kept reading. And so I made sure I'm not going to pursue this stuff. I had no idea that every time, like four times a day, when I was arguing with my brother on 
You're going to think me such a geek. You already do, so it's okay. Uh, is, is light from a light bulb artificial light or natural light? And we would argue about it. Multiple times a day. Isn't that crazy? That is a senseless, useless argument. That is what Paul was saying, don't do. But I did over and over and over and over. And like my brother and I would find crazy things to argue about because we couldn't fist fight. So we would argue about crazy things. I just digressed. People who are youthful tend to argue about things that don't matter. And they tend to push their viewpoint in a way that is unkind, in a way that is proud. Some people who are older do the same thing, but they're acting according to youthfulness. Paul says, hey, Timothy, you have this propensity. You have this pet sin that you and the people of Ephesus have. Flee those desires. Flee them. We have step one. Paul says, Timothy, you see what you're doing. That is it against, that it is wrong. It is against God. That's step two. Timothy, flee from it. Turn away from it. Don't do it. You know it's bad. Stop it. And then we have step three. Pursue righteousness instead. Faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. See the sin. Turn away from it. Turn toward God, toward the Christ way. Now, notice that the thing that Timothy was to turn away from is correlated with the thing that he was to turn toward. The evil desires of youth were arguing about things that don't matter and pushing a viewpoint in an unkind, proud way. That's what Timothy was supposed to turn away from. He was supposed to turn towards righteousness, faith, love, and peace with fellow Christians. Take this sin out of your life and fill that spot with something else. If, if, if what you're struggling with, Timothy, is being proud and unkind, pursue righteousness, faith, and love. If what you're pursuing is, what you're turning away from is arguing about things that don't matter, pursue peace with fellow Christians. Turn away from this, fill it with something that is holy. The concept of repentance, of turn away, turn toward God, turn away from something bad, fill it with a correlating good thing, is what Paul talks about to Ephesus. Oh, that's where Timothy was preaching at. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, you can listen to this passage, Ephesians 4, 22 to 32. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You can almost put up this line with a middle point, and you have the things that they weren't to do, and then corresponding the things that they were to do. Whenever we take something that is evil or sinful out of our life, it creates a vacuum in that space. 
because we're pursuing this sinful thing, this addiction, for a reason. We're saying this thing will provide what only God can provide. And so we say, no, I'm going to turn away from that, and in that vacuum it's leaves, I'm going to fill it with a corresponding good thing that God is providing, where I can get what God says he's going to provide, everything right here from it. We take this and we go there. Each of these things, turn away from this, turn toward godly action itself. Repentance, we turn away from our pattern of sin and we turn to God, pursuing the way of Christ. Now, to embrace repentance, we have to acknowledge a couple truths about this way of Christ. If we are to turn away from sin and turn toward the way of Christ, what is this way of Christ? We must know two things. First, that the way of Christ is good. The way of Christ is good. There must be something that compels us to turn away from a sinful pattern. As we've said multiple times before, we're pursuing this thing because of what it promises us. The alcoholic drinks because he thinks he will get something from that drink. It's providing something for him. And so he'll pursue it. It doesn't fully provide it. It only gives him a small taste of what he wants, and so he keeps pursuing it over and over and over again. And instead of turning to God, who says, I'm going to do everything, we pursue this. And we're okay with that small matter because we can get a little bit more and a little bit more maybe, 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 maybe. And pursuing that sinful pattern is, is better for us. It's easier for us, we think, than completely uprooting our life and going through all the pain of grief and confession of turning away from sinful patterns. At least that's what we tell ourselves. There's a reason we're doing this, and that reason is more pleasant to us than pursuing Christ. There must be something that compels us to turn away from our sinful pattern. And that thing is that we realize the ugliness of the sin and the complete amazing beauty of Jesus Christ, because he is the most beautiful thing. Jonathan Edwards was an old American preacher that preached before the Revolutionary War, and he was very famous when asked by someone, why do people turn to Jesus in faith? He will tell them that it is the most, that Jesus is beautiful, and it's his beauty that causes people to turn to him. That Jesus is the most lovely, sweet thing in the whole wide world. And when people actually see him for who he is and what he does, they can't help but turn to him because he's been all they've ever wanted all this life. We could think about what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 34. He said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Taste him. If you, if you, if you grasp hold him and actually see him, you say, this is, this is goodness itself. This is what I've wanted. In Psalm 29, 2, the King James says this, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. Modern translations say the splendor of his holiness. It means the same thing, but I like the word beauty there because Jesus is the most beautiful thing in the world. He's the most satisfying being in the whole universe. He's the most satisfying thing outside of the universe. He is what we need. His way is complete goodness. His way is the way of life that we have never known here. The psalmist says in Psalm 84, 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. 
when we pursue the way of Christ, no good thing Jesus withholds from us. Jesus' way is the way of surety. We can see in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light in my path. With so many people who say that they're walking through this life and, and, and there's uncertainty, there's fogginess, there's, like, there's, there's no direction for them. But once they turn to Jesus, all of a sudden their way becomes clear. Their way becomes solid. Their way becomes straight. Jesus' way is the way of rest. Jeremiah writes this in 6.16. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads. Look, ask for the ancient paths and ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. There are so many people in this world that do not have rest. They sleep, maybe, but they don't have rest. In Jesus is the rest that so many people want and they're not restful because they're looking for rest in all these other places where if they would just stop and abode in Christ. There is rest. His way is the way of purpose. Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good work, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If we follow the way of Christ, we all of a sudden have purpose in our life. Jesus' way is the way of comfort. Psalm 23.4. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you, Jesus. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jesus' way is the way of eternal joy and pleasure. Psalm 16, 11. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Jesus said this in John 10, 7 to 10. Truly I tell you, I'm the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They'll come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullness. John eight twelve. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We all have experienced the path of sin in our life. We have experienced the pain that comes from it, the hopelessness, the darkness. We've, we've experienced it, and we know what that path brings, and we still follow it. We know what sin says that it will provide, and it never does. But we still follow it. And Jesus stands here, over here, saying, Look, follow me, and all these things I promise are yours. If you just do it. If you just do it. The way of Christ. Ditching all those things and following Christ alone is good. Completely, sweetly beautifully good. But not only is it good, but it is costly. It's costly. Very, very costly. To turn from a pattern of sin and turn to God and follow Christ in his way means that we must say no. We must say no to an integral part of our life right now. A life that we have nurtured along. Maybe we've kept secret or rejoiced, but it's part of our life that we have valued and has given us something and that's why we've kept it and we must say no to it right now. And that comes at a cost. It comes at a cost to rip part of our house and just demolish it. Jesus said in Luke 9, 
whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose and forfeit their very self? Jesus says, if we jump behind him and follow him in this life, that means we must take up our cross just as he did. What does it mean to take up a cross? Easter is coming. Resurrection Sunday. Before Resurrection Sunday is Good Friday where we remember Jesus' death on the cross. Pilate handed Jesus over to the Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers whipped him, flogged him, pounded a crown of thorns on his head, and then slapped an unsanded plank of wood on his back. And he was to carry that through the streets of Jerusalem up to Golgotha, where his hands would be pounded into that and he would be lifted up and die. In this time, to carry one's cross meant that you were going to your death that day. That's what it meant. And everyone that Jesus was talking to that day knew that that was what he meant. To carry one's cross daily means that we are to die daily. Jesus, to his disciples, were not, was not talking about physical death, though several of them would carry literally their own cross to die on for the sake of Christ. But he was not talking about physical death. Jesus went through physical death for us. When he died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he carried our sins on his shoulders. He died in our place. He experienced the wrath of God for us, that whoever turns to Jesus in faith will not perish but have everlasting life. He did it all. Jesus, when he says, take up your cross daily, means that we are to have a daily denial of the desires of our sinful nature. To follow Christ and to experience eternal life daily requires worldly sacrifice. We die to our sins today. We say, yes, this is the life I lived, and I am dying to that life. It is no more. I'm living over here. And the next day we say, this is the life I lived. I am dying to that life today. I No more. I'm living over here. The next day we say, this is the life I lived. I'm dying to that life today. No more. I'm living over here. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 6, 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now here, Jesus is is speaking about the addiction to money, which we call greed. But it's an addiction to money. But the truth remains across the board. No matter what the addiction, no matter what the sin is, we cannot serve both Jesus and our addiction. We cannot serve both Jesus and our sin. We have to kick one to the curb. Too often, it is not the sin that we kick to the curb. Too often, it's Jesus. Because we say, I want to do this. I'm going to stop it later. Today, I'm going to do it. You know what? It's not that bad. Everyone else is doing it. There, it's okay. And so on, the excuses go. But whenever we do that, whenever we say, I choose my sin, whenever we say, I choose my addiction, we are turning to Jesus and we are kicking him to the curb and saying, I don't choose you. A.W. Tozer said this. He says, how many Christians are there who pray every Sunday in church, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, without ever realizing the spiritual implications of such a prayer? What are we praying for? 
Should we edit that prayer so that it becomes a confrontation? My kingdom go, Lord. Let thy kingdom come. Certainly his kingdom can never be realized in my life until my own sinful kingdom is removed. It's when I resign, when I'm no longer king of my domain, that Jesus Christ will become king of my life. One person wrote this. Taking up your cross to follow Christ starts with dying to sin, your sinful nature. This does not mean physical death, nor does it mean that you'll never sin again. It means you're willing to let God rule all of your heart as both your Savior and the Lord. It means we take a long look at the sinful paths that we are walking on, and we change. We count the cost, and we change. So if Christ's way is truly good, and we're willing to count the cost and change. Repentance means that we see the sin we're doing it, we turn away from that sin, and we go towards God, the way of Christ. But this path is extremely difficult. An addiction expert said this, turning from sinful paths that you've walked on for years is difficult. Most likely, you have built your home, life, career, and relationships among them. Your mind and body have worn deep ruts of sinful behavior that are easy to slip into, but so hard to get out of. To escape these ruts means changing what you love, what you seek, what you rely upon. You will need to retrain your mind and body to know God's path, hear his voice, and respond to it first. This, this, this path of turning from sin and those deep ruts that we've put into and turning the way of Christ is very painful. And sometimes it feels like we are literally cutting off a hand, which is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 30. He says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus did not actually call us to cut off our hand. Jesus spoke in parables a lot. He spoke in hyperbole, in talking about the extremes to push us. He says we're to take drastic steps to remove sinful patterns from our life. Drastic steps. If we say, this is the pattern that I do not want to go on. I'm not even going to go near it. Because I know where that sin takes me. So I, and I know the path that leads to that sin. So I'm not going to even walk on the path that leads to that sin. I'm going to change everything about my life so I will not go even near it. The Lord's Prayer says this, Lead me not into the way of temptation, but deliver me from evil. Lead me not into the way of temptation. The path that goes over there because I don't want to even go near it. I'm going to change my life completely, which means we have to see ourselves, our sin in the mirror and say, yes, this is my sin. This is what I deal with. And this is the triggers that lead to that. This is the path that I take in there. And so I will cut myself off before I even get to the triggers, before I get to the path. That the same addiction expert gives some examples of repentance. They write, that this could look like checking into an addiction center, even when no one knows that you struggle with an addiction. But you're going to take a step and you're going to say, hey, well, I'm going I'm to take, take the steps necessary to change. It may mean changing jobs to honor God and your family. It may mean ending an affair. It may mean confessing a crime when you know you're going to get jail time for it. It may mean moving away from bad influences because you know where you live, you're surrounded by people who are going to call you out, who are going to bring you into sin, and so you actually move away. It may mean ending internet access 
It may mean starting to take medication. It may mean stopping to take medication. It may mean stopping dating. It may mean seizing sexual activity. It may mean setting up boundaries with the people you love. It may mean cutting up credit cards. It may mean getting counseling for a difficult marriage. It may mean telling the truth to someone who will hurt deeply. It may mean sharing sin struggles with others to ask for help. It may mean forgiving someone who's deeply wounded you. There are multiple ways that we say, this is my sin that I struggle with. I'm turning away from it. I'm turning the way of Christ, and I'm drawing a line so I will not go even near those things that trigger me. This process requires us to know our sinful patterns, our triggers, the path towards sin, as I talked about, and then taking steps to turn away from that path and actively, intentionally turn towards God. How does this work? Well, several weeks ago, I talked to you when I talked about how we were all addicted to something. I talked about my sinful past with pornography and my addiction to that. And I went through and I talked about, okay, these are the things that trigger me. These are the things, this is the path that leads me down to that. I know that when I'm tired, late at night, I'm susceptible to temptation. And I don't want to go near that sin again. So on all my devices, my phone, my tablet, my computer, they're all Apple products. This is not an advertisement for Apple. If you're a Microsoft guy, that's okay. There's ways to do this. Apple just makes it easier. I've not paid for this. Okay. But Apple thinks that I am Maggie's child. It's kind of weird. Don't think about it too much. Apple doesn't need to know. But they think that I'm Maggie's child. And so I have a, I have, it's, it's set up that at 9.30 every night, all of my devices shut down, except for texting, calling, working on finances, working on foreign languages, and watching The Chosen. That's it. It's the only thing I can do after 9.30 at night. Everything else shuts down. There's a code that we could put in if there's something we needed to do. Maggie knows the code. I don't because Apple thinks I am her child. It's something I set up to say, I know this is my propensity, and I don't want to go near that past again, and so I am going to limit myself. Sure, it, it's a crimp. Sometimes, my goodness, it's, there's things that I want to do after 9.30 sometimes, and I cannot do it, and it hurts, but I don't want to go near that temptation again. I have strong filters on all my devices. I got a strong filter on this church computer. And every single one of my devices and the church computer has a spyware software on there that takes pictures of my screens and sends it to my accountability partners. So anytime they can look up and say, yeah, that's what Peter's looking at. It removes my privacy, but I know, and therefore it stops me from going near that stuff. This process of saying, okay, this is my sin, This is what I struggle with. This is my triggers. This is my path that leads up to it. Works for anything, any sort of sin, any sort of addiction. It works for pride, works for people pleasing, it works for gossiping, works for gluttony, workaholism, substance abuse, anything. We see the path, we look at the triggers, and we say, I don't want to go near that sin again. I'm drawing a line in the sand. I'm going to go 180 degrees and turn towards Christ and his way. We must be people who repent, who turn away from it all. We must be people who come entirely ready to turn away from our pattern of sin and turn to Christ. Father, thank you for being the God not only who called us your own and called us out of our sin to save us, but being the God who doesn't leave us as we are, but calls us to change, calls us to holiness. And thank you, God, that you've created a process for that. 
Lord, help us to be people who fearlessly look at ourselves and say, this is me, and who have the guts to say, this is not who I want to be, and to make the steps, the bold, painful steps to turn to you and follow you in your holiness, your beauty, because you, Lord, are worthy, and you are the best thing that has ever happened to us. Thanks, Father. Amen.